The Artificial Intelligence Podcast. AI in real life. My name is Liao Wang, and I have this thing with money. Namely, I'm very aware that it matters in life. You know how people say money can't buy happiness? That may be true, but like my mom always used to say, it sure can save you a lot of worries. It's not like we were ever poor or something. I've had a pretty unremarkable happy childhood. Maybe it's an immigrant thing. This feeling of insecurity that there could come a time when the best option in life is to pack your bags and leave everything you've ever known behind. This idea of almost but not quite belonging, of having to earn a home, a place in the world, rather than to be born into it. This principle of working harder, being better, acting nicer, because I only just got here, and honestly, what gives me the right to be here anyway? I guess I was raised with the idea that money is, if not a route to happiness, a route to safety, to stability, to freedom. Not that I'm complaining. I mean, I just bought a house. I have a credit card and a mild addiction to online shopping. But I do realize it's not that way for everyone. Purchasing power, credit, or even online payments aren't as easily accessible as we might think. Joining me are Yura Bynot and David Lin from Naspers and Payu, a global firm with roots in media who now invest in and help local startups. Their entrepreneurs work in payments, e-commerce, food delivery, and many other areas, but have one thing in common: they work to make a difference in emerging markets. High growth, high impact. Well, first of all, Naspers is、um, a global consumer internet group. And actually, is one of the largest technology investors in the world.、Um, what's I think peculiar or unique is that we tend to build、uh, leading companies that address、uh, big societal needs across the globe, and、um, and we actually focus our efforts on the markets where we operate. So it's a global and local company at the same time somehow. So、um, what does that look like, sort of in real life? So, for instance, some of the the the, the areas where we operate are、um, well. Actually, we, we focus on three main core areas at this point in time. One is、uh, online classifieds, so platforms where people buy and sell goods, and sometimes are just ordinary goods, like I don't know, it can be a laptop or an object. Sometimes, actually, it's、uh, cars or houses, real estate, or it can also be markets、uh, for jobs. So that's one of the biggest one biggest operations we have. The second one, but I think we are going to talk a lot more later. It's a payment and fintech, so both the payment side and the credit side. And another one where we focus a lot recently is the、um, food delivery. So everything that has to do with connecting, let's say, the, the restaurants with those that want to buy food and, and taking care of the delivery. That these are the three main ones. And I, more than that, and you know, sometimes Naspers is known for the other operations we have. We, we have e-commerce businesses. We have a large ventures operation with some um, um, actually specific investments in areas like、uh, education technology or healthcare, which we believe are going to grow fast in the future. And of course, we have sizable investments in、uh, internet and social platforms like Tencent or Mail.ru. And historically, Naspers is a media company, right? A traditional media company. You could say that, but it was a long time ago, right? So, so, so classifieds make sense、um, in that aspect because newspapers were full of classifieds. Newspapers, newspapers were the classifieds platform of the past. How did Naspers make that switch to, as you say? All those things that have a big societal impact. 
Well, it took, let's say, a long time. So Naspers is almost a hundred years old company. And of course, the, let's say, the form of Naspers that we know now is much more recent. But yes, I mean, the root is in news and it's in South Africa. And then over time, this has changed from news, it became television and then it became uh, content on demand. And from those, you know, the, the, the step is sort of easy to go into the internet and the internet, there are some things that seem more attractive than others. So that's the way it works. It's a fairly organic growth. What happened in the process is that, and that's the nature of NASPAS, we found in that process that in some local markets there are great entrepreneurs that can really, let's say, make a difference in the markets where they operate. And then when we find that, we tend to invest in it and we look at the long-term perspective of these businesses. So we take a long-term view and if we believe that there is a market, a business that has, let's say, these characteristics of solving societal needs, things that really matter for people in the long term. We tend to go in there and stay for a long time, always focusing on great entrepreneurship. So that's that's the key thing. And then, of course, the areas where we operate are a natural progression. Right. And that's the local part of your sort of hub and spoke model. Absolutely. Um, but you do more than just locally invest, right? So the um, the, uh, the the companies that we uh, the companies in the group, they all have let's say a strong local component, but some of these businesses are are similar across various geographies, right? So that's where the group structure, where the the business structure makes a difference. So we are local, let's say local operated but global company, if you want, right? So take classifies for instance. How is that? What part of that is done centrally where you are? AI, for example, I can imagine. And what part of it is done locally in the countries? So the AI is actually a good example because it has exactly both these components, right? So um, people started working in machine learning and data science on AI maybe 10 years ago, right? And that was the initial, let's say, experiments and so on. And uh, that was everywhere, right? But it was not really a core strategic, let's say, dimension for the company. It was not for, for any anybody in the group. It actually was not for anybody out there in the business. So what we have seen in the last few years is that it has evolved as a first in opportunistic way. So take specific use cases like fraud detection, you know, or just image recognition and so on, and built into something that's really core to almost every product and service that we built. Now, because of the fact that in many cases, there is, let's say, commonality between the use cases, between the knowledge, between the competence and so on, then a layer of, let's say, let's say, across the all the organization makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because so, it's the same everywhere, so why not share it? That's one thing, that's one dimension. The best practices can be shared and all that. And the... Um, The effect is that, as you see, fast forward and the way it is now, there are data science teams within the the different businesses in payments, we'll see later, or in the credit, we'll see later how that works. And there are data science teams that sit in between or across that help, on the one hand, accelerate where... And we can. Uh, we help scale. We call scale because initially you have data science applications, the front end towards the customers and so on. But you can apply that in legal. You can apply that in finance. You know, it's much broader in terms of opportunity. And then the other thing that we're really keen on is that as this matures, not only for us, for everybody, that we think of AI as a design factor. So artificial intelligence is not an add-on, it's not a retrofitting something. You really start thinking about the new wave of services and products, giving for granted the fact that you know how to manage data, the fact that you know how to build machine learning algorithms, you know how to bring them in production, how to iterate fast. That becomes a design, let's say, 
principle, and that's one of the roles that we think we, we can play. And and when we take a specific example of that, that's, for instance, PayU, where you work, David, right? Um, can you tell us something? Because that's not a very household name in most countries. So what do you do? So let me take a step back. One of the one of the mission statements PayU want to do is really create a world without financial border. What it, what it means is that give people freedom to be able to transact either payment or through banking. Uh, it doesn't matter which country, they have the opportunity to do that. Uh, for example, take India, for example. There's about 1.3 billion people out there today, uh, but only 35 million people has credit card. So if you look at how underserved the country is, it's, it's created a lot of opportunity where we can leverage our mission to be able to create a different ways of payment, for example, to create to make the people's life a lot easier. So how is the life of someone in India, you know, maybe rural India, who doesn't have a credit card today, going to change because of what PayU does? Well, if someone today who doesn't have a credit card today, they cannot buy anything online. Or if they buy online, it's going to be very difficult for them, right? And what PayU could change for them is that we could start looking at the way that we could offer our product through the mobile phone, because because mobile penetration in India is quite fast. Uh, about 250 million handsets in India today. Uh, and most people have mobile phone. So by being able to use the mobile phone and using our technology and data, we could create a vehicle that be able to deliver product and services through the mobile phone. Uh, for example, if we have a transaction history of a mobile phone, we have an idea about the demographic of the person, therefore we could be able to start testing, underwriting uh, to that particular customer segment. So banks are very good in serving people who already have a credit history. Where we don't have a credit history, it's going to be very, very difficult for someone to get a loan. This is where PayU comes in. PayU was able to use the transactional data uh, from the payment system and be able to be able to figure out a population that is in need for credit that we can make offer credit to. Um, so PayU today has a lot of transaction data. Uh, we, process, we, we process roughly about a, a billion transaction data on a yearly basis across the globe. And uh, so this allows us to be able to figure out, a, a, using data science to be able to allow to figure out who are good risk, who are bad risk, and who are likely people who will be using the credit. And so by leveraging those data, it will allow us to be able to penetrate markets similar to India where you need to rely on credit bureau to do underwrite. Now we can use our data for underwriting. So how do you collect this transaction data? Where do you get this from? So the way we process our data today, essentially that when you go shopping today, when you go checkout, and when you need to have a different payment method, that's where the pay you manage. So pay you manage the payment method for a lot of merchants. So India, for example, we have over... 100,000 merchants today that we have today. Uh, so we manage the payment processing for those merchants because the merchant, most of the merchants doesn't have the technical know-how how to manage the payment processing. So this is where we come in. We make their life easier for the merchant side. So is this offline, online, both? It's, it's only online payment. Uh, one of the NASPER uh, mission is that basically everything that we do is going to be digitally uh, enabled. Uh, so everything that we do here today is actually online. So you have these online shops, big or small, and as soon as you go to checkout, PayU is the one that handles it. Yes, that's that's right. And how do you then go from handling the checkout to estimating someone's credit worthiness? There's a couple of things that you need. 
uh, one is basically you need data. And in this particular case, we have all the transaction data. Uh, and so, for example, if you shop a lot, shop very frequently, chances are it's a good gauge of your, your, li- your lifestyle. And from your lifestyle, we'll be able to figure out, okay, that is probably a very good risk. They probably uh, spend a lot on food. They probably spend a lot on different merchandise. Therefore, we could figure out their ability to pay and the willingness to pay based on that. Uh, and once we have those data, then we'll be able to figure out what product and what service we want to offer to them. And we could do, we do a lot of experimenting. By all means, we don't know everything from day one. So we do a lot of experimenting, experimenting particularly hypothesis testing. And one of the hypotheses that we had from day one when we started this business, the credit business a couple of years ago, we were thinking about, well, can our trans- transaction data really help to predict risk? And we didn't know that. And so, however, we know that there's a strong hypothesis, strong correlation between the amount you purchase and also the credit risk. We think there's a strong correlation there. And so therefore, we, we do a test. And the way we do the test is basically we do a small batch test to learn and to see if we give our credit to a certain population to see if we repay us. And once we learn more and more about that behavior, then we start building a credit risk model around it uh, using machine learning, using AI. And this is how we do it. We do it step by step and it's a very disciplined approach. We test and learn and refine. And so today we're in our third generation of model ready uh, within the last 18 months. Uh, we still continue to do that and we always continue to test and learn. And that's, that's how it's going to make our process better. So is PayU now uh, a bank? Well, we're not a bank. Uh, we, and maybe at some point in time, we will be a bank. Uh, and, but our inspiration is that it definitely provide financial services to masses. Uh, that could, we start with payment first. We're going to go credit. Uh, I think that we would like to offer as many financial service products as we can, just because a lot of countries that we're in today, not, a lot of customers that we have today are not serviced by the bank. Right. And, and that goes back to what you said, Euro, about AI for good. Um, I'm hearing the potential here of everyone who has access to the Internet through a phone, for instance, also having access through uh, financial credit and loans. That, that's absolutely true. So in, uh, in many of the examples that David has been illustrating now, this is, you know, microcredit. So these are small amounts that can be, you know, used to buy some general things that you, that you need daily. But yes, this is one of these cases in which you have on the one hand a viable business that, that can grow and can be very successful and it serves a very strong societal need, which is that of giving access to a growing number of people to the opportunity to shop online. And that's important not only because... So why does that matter? Because it's not a matter of convenience. Because a lot of the businesses, a lot of the sales, a lot of the tools that you buy and the goods that you buy are available increasing online and less offline. So if you don't have the transition, your 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 options are less and the convenience is much less. And sometimes you can just you know, cut out from some opportunities. So it is something. It's, it's you really enable you know an entire population to to do what it is that they need. Right. Someone in in rural India has access to the same stuff basically as someone in Delhi. Pretty much the same, yes. And and that is predicated on the fact that uh, mobile uh, phones, mobile devices are very, very common and getting more and more common. So what kind of... It, it sounds like you're creating almost a freedom for people in, in areas where, where certain things weren't available before. You know, what, what kind of change does that make in people's daily lives? 
Well, it's um, it's it's a working process, so you will see how this plays out, you know, over a longer period of time. But in general, what you see is access. You, you actually create access that was not available before, and that access, then, you know, we expect, uh, we, we we actually postulate here, will have a beneficial impact for the communities. We have a beneficial impact for the other business that can join the communities and so on. It's um, it's it's probably your way of putting it is correct. You actually bring in service that otherwise would be available only to a specific group of people in a specific, let's say, urban environment to a much broader group of people. So have you seen examples of that? Because because um, you also do e-commerce. Have you seen examples of um, services or materials or things suddenly um, being bought in locations that you've, you've never seen that before? We see that all the time, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's more a general process phenomena. So we do not keep tab or what we haven't seen first and then what we see later. What we see that these services are very diffuse. It's not necessarily only in the big cities, but they are accessible to everybody. So probably therefore, right, there must be the fact that you mentioned. Yeah. So if, if it's okay, I can give a we could see a good use case on that. Uh, so for example, if you ever been to India, like Mumbai or Delhi, you know one of the biggest challenges get to one place to another place, even though it's a few kilometers, it's it take a disaster. Hours. It yeah. takes hours. Uh, and so we have this product called micro lending, which is called Lazy Pay. Uh, essentially, you could buy a very, very low ticket size merchant merchandise online. The perfect use case will be food delivery, for example. So you could order food, uh, but you could you, you don't need cash. You could you, you could defer your payment uh, for 15 days, and so you could per- continue to purchase food items in in the given 15 day and pay or settle your bill in one time. And that makes a lot of big difference because you don't need cash. You can order stuff online and you get your delivery very quickly. If there's a dispute on the food product, you don't have to pay for it because you, you, you don't need to deal with the return and refund process. And particularly in the context of India, it saves a lot of time just because you don't have to worry about food, you don't have to go pick it up and really, really be able to change people's life. Because Just because you don't need cash or a credit card anymore. Yes. And also you could, so you don't have to worry about, well, I don't have any money, I have to go to the bank to get some money first before I pay for my food. It just makes the people's life more convenient. Uh, and given the fact that the traffic is so bad in, in, in a lot of cities where it operates, so that saves a lot of people's time. So when you think about um, providing these loans, even though they're microloans, you know, what banks do is they constantly balance the risk portfolio almost, right? And and that's also how they make money, by optimizing that risk p- portfolio. Is that something you're doing also, continuously trying to take as much risk as you can afford? We, we are. Uh, I think any risk taken, you're looking for some sort of payback. Um, just like everybody else, we, are, we, we invest and we invest the credit, we expect certain uh, return as well. Uh, but we've taken a very... We're taking a very aspirational approach, right? First, we got to be able to make sure our product is acceptable uh, in a way that people are actually going to use the product. And so not only risk have to worry about, we also need to make sure that the product we offer are what people want to use. And so when we think about this, it's actually multi-dimension. We think about the product perspective, make sure that people want to use the product. We think about risk perspective to make sure that we'll be able to manage the right balance of risk. Uh, we also cooperate with banks because, you know, we're not... We don't take a lot of stuff on our balance sheets. For example, bank has the ability to do that. We don't. So we cooperate with banks uh, and, and, and to be able to balance out our risk portfolio that way. Uh, but first and foremost, uh, our 
the mission is really try to make sure that we create the right product for our consumer. And then all the other stuff will get balanced out eventually. Do banks see you as a, a competitor? Um, we like to see our banks as friends. Um, that's how we like to see it. Uh, they may view us differently. A frenemy. Uh, no, 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 a, a friend. Uh, we, we like to see that. Uh, and particularly, if you look at what a fintech space uh, and if you look at the customers that we serve, we serve, we serve a lot of bank customers. They already have a banking relationship. At the same time, we also know that there's a certain segment of, certain segment of customer today not being serviced by the bank, where we could help the bank to get to it. Uh, and so we, we, work, we work with banks very closely. For example, one of our business uh, in Poland, a lot of our credit product is actually uh, distributed by the banks, and we work with banks very closely on that. It's inter- interesting that you bring up Poland because because that reminds me of the hub and spoke model we we talked about earlier. So this started in India in this case. I guess you found a, a great entrepreneur in India who did this, and you invested and you helped him scale, and you saw the potential this has for all these kind of underdeveloped rural areas. Um, and then Central comes in. How how does that work? How do you take this from India to Africa to Bolivia to Poland. So actually, this is very much the the um, uh, the nature of NASPAS. So the ability of doing that. So we have done that many many times in many many differences, different businesses, and so on. So um, um, it, it, at this point in time, the footprint is already very large. Right? So we are present in, I mean, over hundred countries and so on. So the the question of you know which business we support and which business we develop, it's it's more a matter of opportunity rather than you know finding out you know what 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 we should start or not but i think yes but one of the key things in any case in this um uh, the examples that david has uh, presented is that they are very very general right so it's uh, it's, it's perhaps this is not very common in the netherlands or in germany and you know, the united states and so on but it's vast parts of the world where you really have large population of unbanked so they're just not visible right and um, so for this you have to look for something different hmm? And uh, the typical, the typical, at this point in time, what we see as the best way to do that is by leveraging data that comes from transactions, data that comes from some specific, let's say, e-commerce, perhaps early stage, um, let's say, transactions as well. But you mentioned before, even the offline, it's also important, right? Because in general, that's going to be, it, it is already a channel where you can, you can combine, you know, you buy and then you pay offline and then you have to reconcile the two. All of them seems to be a much better bet hmm, than traditional, let's say, tools to create something that is good visibility on the ability of customers to return the loans and at the same time to open up a larger pool of people. This this can be really replicated almost everywhere. Right. So so is it something you, you have trained this model on transaction data in India and basically on behavior of the Indian consumer? Can you just pick this up and land it in Africa, for instance? That would be great, but it's not that simple. AI never works that way, <laughs> no. right? No, but um, so if you go back 10 years ago, I would say, no, and I actually start from scratch. You know, you just you know, okay, restart from the data, clean the data, make sure that the data is appropriate for the purpose, redesign the features, fill and select the model, do the training, so the, the usual pipeline and so on. And by and large, this still goes in the same way, but you can start from, let's say, 
models which already work in general, 80%, and then you can tune them and improve them in different places. So that's, that's something that has made a difference. The other thing is that while the data may be different, while the behavior may be different, the features that actually drive, let's say, the, the, the models, what, what actually turns out to be important in various places of the world are in part the same. So if you have lots of experience in some place, you can take that experience. So you never start from scratch. Hmm? You start from 70%, but you never start from 100% either. So what are what are things that maybe surprised you in the data that you thought would be the same but aren't, or that you thought would be different but are the same all over the world? I mean, David, you can add on that one, but what I've seen, for instance, is that you know you, you might have either models that have 40 or 50 features, or like 30 are exactly the same, and then you have this specific one that has to do with I don't know frequency of payment or a frequency of shopping that in country A is relevant, hmm? in country B, well, that actually drives a lot of how you can explain the ability of returning or not. That you know sometimes you have to spend a lot of time figuring out why is that, hmm? and uh, but it might be because of different. Culture. It might be because of different habits. It might be because of different attitudes from the people to specific goods and so on. So it may be various, right? But you do find this kind of example. So. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I can imagine the way you buy, how often you buy, what you buy in what moments and how is very reflective of um, culture, maybe. Do you see that coming back in your data? Well, we see a lot of commonality, uh, surprisingly. And also some differences as well. Uh, what's differences in the, in the data is what you are referring to. There's a little nuances in terms of local behavior, local data instance, where in a particular country, in for example, India is a great place for mobile phone. So everything is mobile related. Where in certain particular country, it's not so much mobile related. It's all desktop, which they rely on more the desktop information. And so those are, those are the things that we need to adjust uh, in our thinking from a product perspective as well from a credit risk model perspective. It's more the data capturing element is going to be slightly different. And then, and then if I may add something, the only thing that I, you know, it's that we all pay lots of attention is just let's take our assumptions of what we learn from other sectors with a pinch of salt and revalidate everything you do every time to make sure that you are on spot. Hey, and I just want to go back to what you said um, a second ago, David. You just told me if you're a cash user, you probably don't have that much credit worthiness. Now, I know this and I can suddenly choose to not use cash anymore to try to fool you and to give me a loan that I'm never going to pay back. Is that a thing? People trying to constantly game your system of, of assessing them? <laughs> I think I think there's definitely going to be gaming theory, and then a lot of we have to deal with such a fraud related, uh, and then fraud in terms of identity fraud, uh, and particularly in a context where you think about a lot of emerging market where the cell phone, uh, the cell phone is actually pretty cheap. In order to get a SIM card, it's extremely cheap, and and that's cheaper than what we want to give them more than what we want to give them credit for. Uh, and so one thing we learned, we learned very early on. Uh, to our fraud analytics is that we initially, we see a lot of fraud losses. Therefore, we had to build a fraud model on, the, on top of it to identify who are likely to be defraud, defrauding us. So, so what's a fraud loss? A fraud loss is essentially a, a, a someone who, who buy a SIM chip, for example, who assume different people's identity and they use a new phone number and they use the phone number to try to transact and therefore they, they don't intend to pay us back. 
but they will, but we offer credit because based on our past behavior, right. we think they're good, they're good risk. Uh, and so those are the type of fraud laws that we're dealing with. Uh, and so early on, we learned uh, through our testing, we learned that we need to manage fraud losses. And the way to manage fraud losses is pretty straightforward. We look at if they if they have shopped here before or not, how many times they shopped here before, uh, are they a repeat shopper, frequent shopper, infrequent shopper, and from there we could be able to figure out from our modeling exercise, our AI exercise, we will figure out who are the good risk, who are the bad risk, uh, and and by learning by testing we were able to refine our analytic uh, our. AI a lot better than before. And so, yes, we can, we're continuing to deal with fraud and the gaming as well. Yeah, so you have to continue training your algorithm to, to stay ahead of, of the gamers. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we had to deal that from the, on a daily basis. Uh, we we'll continue to look at the way to refresh our model uh, and just make sure that uh, our model is working what we expected. In addition to that, we also test a different model. Different, different methodology, different algorithm, different data that we'll be able to bring in as well. And so we constantly try to stay ahead of the game. And so listening to you, you're a, you're a, and, and David actually too, you're both data scientists. You work at NASPERS. You collect huge amounts of data across the world um, from payments, from classifieds, from e-commerce. Uh, doesn't that make your hands itch on like what else you could do with everything you're collecting? Well, yes, in, 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 in the sense that, you know, once you have the opportunity of creating businesses like the one that David has expressed, you have something that otherwise would be very, very hard uh, to make, right? So, uh, on the other hand, we are also very conscious of the use of data. So, we're very conscious that, you know, data is a, is a valuable asset, but it has, you know, we have to respect rules, which are legal, of course, but also common sense to use. Of course, that. but it, it also offers so many opportunities. Like, what would be sort of your next opportunity that you would like to crack with NASPERS? Oh, well, I mean, th those opportunities go across the uh, the entire portfolio, right? You know, if, if you look at payments, let's stay with, with that business. So you have um, a variety of adjacent businesses that can be potentially uh, served with both. So for instance, you know, I'm, I'm not making the strategy of the company now, but just out of intuition, you just look, for instance, insurance is there, which is an important, remittance is there, which is another type of business, which is important. And then, of course, I mean, if you look in the, the horizon, you can also imagine banking on, on better basis, on different basis, the traditional ones. So most of them, all of them are predicated on your ability to manage transaction data, uh, consumer data in a proper way. That would be very hard to imagine without that, in particular when you stay at the micro level, when you have volumes but small amounts. But to expand on Euro, uh, I think you can look at across the different products. Uh, and the product could be financial product, could be insurance product, any product, but it could also go deeper as well uh, within the product. Uh, and so, for example, I think US, for example, you could buy an item online in Amazon today with one click. That process has not been replicated in any emerging market. Uh, and just so, so that is one of the things that we try to crack at PayU is to see how do we allow our consumer to have that convenience uh, and so they can shop online with only simple click. Uh, and, and we're not there yet. And I think that's so, so we have still a lot of homework to do. Um, but yes, but we could look at, you know, there's quite a bit of challenge, not only on the data side, but how do we leverage the data to create the right product? And allow us to be able to make the right decision, and, and it's 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 constantly evolving learning process for us. So first, banking the unbanked, and next up is insuring the uninsured. 
I would not go that far, but it sounds good. (laughs) Sounds really good. We're going to copy that. David Lin and Euro Binot from Payu and Naspers, changing the world through AI one industry at a time. The OG AI. In 2013, Spike Jones's Her came out. A visual gem and a story as old as time. Boy meets girl, girl helps boy out of depression. Boy falls in love with girl, girl leaves Earth with other AIs after they create a hyper-intelligence OS. Oh yes, the her in this movie is an AI, an operating system, a companion. The movie is beautiful sci-fi and pretty much reality. And six years ago already. So how close is this fully operational companion AI system? Our buds at dazeddigital.com did a wonderful piece on this question. Keep in mind, the article is also already a year old. So we're even that much closer again to that distant past. The thing is, making friends online isn't new. Heck, I've been doing it since 1997. Getting attached to written messages with people you never met. Assuming they were people. Now there's interactive AI with Sophie, who wants to become an empathic robot. Chatbots are deployed for therapy sessions. Loads of apps are available against loneliness. So is companionship AI something to be scared of? Deist spoke with Björn Schuler, professor of artificial intelligence at the Imperial College London. This good man makes some good points. Humans suck at emotions. An AI will not. They'll have perfect control. They'll put all the signals in different tracks not to get them mixed up. We'll be the most amazeable listeners as they remember everything. Which is kind of scary, remembering everything. But as they don't really have emotions or something to gain, it might actually help. See, that's the thing. They simulate emotions. They don't really feel And that whole question is for the big philosophers of our time and time to come. What makes our AI reality different from Samantha in her? As she learns to feel, even gets sexually aroused, and leaves to learn and feel more. So we're not there yet with superior emotional intelligent AI, but we're getting there. And AI, carebots, chatbots are great help. Because what's wrong with finding a companion made out of bits and bytes and just text? Why should that be scary? Because when you watch the movie, all the heartbreak and distance you feel comes from Theodore, the human, as he is incapable of making a real connection. Well, I'm off to reappreciate my access to credit. Time to see if AI can recommend me some food for tonight. Follow me for more at bnr.nl slash AI podcast or on your favorite podcast app.